0: I love having Mitch here, don't you? And just for the record, Mitch, this is Westridge, so we don't assume it's a pop can. i just saying, just keeping it real. This will also be the last time I speak at Westridge, Um, so I'll miss you all. What am I saying? Darren's in Mexico. We don't know where Gordon is, so I can say what I want. (laughs) Buckle up. Uh, We're in a series called Why Give? And we're looking, rather than topically doing a series of messages, we're literally just walking through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where we're letting Paul teach us, as he did the Church of Corinth, on that topic. Now, he was writing to a group of Christians in the port city city, of Corinth. Corinth was a large progressive cultural city. It was very refined. It was multinational, multi-ethic. It was a city with a sordid reputation. Think New York. Think Miami. Think Milwaukee. Um, Paul spent 18 months starting a church there. After leaving, he sent letters to instruct and to encourage them. He even sent one of his young protégés, Titus, to help that church along in their faith. During the time that Titus was there, the Jewish believers in the city of Jerusalem came under some financial hardship. And so letters went out to all the churches all around the Mediterranean saying, could you possibly help the Jewish believers in Jerusalem? And apparently the church in Corinth was so moved that they pledged a large offering to help During the time that Titus was there working with them, they pledged this offering, and more than a year later, they're now struggling to pull that offering together. It's not apparently a matter of money, it's kind of a logistical thing that they're struggling with. And Paul writes extensively in these two chapters, instructing them on the heart of giving, and he answers the question, why give? Now, I give you that background just simply to say that Paul's about to take a hard right turn in his writing. Paul has been writing to them about why they need to give and why they need to bring this gift to completion. And now, after writing extensively, Paul is about to say something very different. It's almost like Paul's sitting writing and he goes, you know what? After a year of communicating with you, I've missed something. I've not said a single word to you about what's going to happen when you collect this large financial gift, and it's going to go hundreds of miles away. Who's going to take care of that? What's the whole process? And can you really trust us with this money? Paul then writes a good amount of information about the integrity involved and how they're going to handle the money that's being collected. And he leaves no room to question if the funds are going to be misused or misappropriated. Those are fair questions to ask of the leaders in Paul's day and in our day. One researcher said there's more fraud in the name of God today than there is anything else. There's a lot of fleeced flocks out there. About $569 billion, with a B, dollars will be given worldwide this year to Christian causes. And one analysis says that about 6%, $35 billion, will end up in the hands of money launderers, embezzlers, tax evaders, or unscrupulous leaders who are living too high on the hog. Think about it. $35 billion that's given to Christian charities going to be misused this year. If that doesn't give you pause about the question, why give? It'll certainly give you pause about where to give. So in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul lays out some principles about the biblical way to handle gifts that are given. And we're going to walk through that today. Not a very sexy topic. Not a topic that churches talk about often. I've heard lots of messages in my life about why you should give and how you should give never heard anybody sit on a stage and say here's what we're going to do when you give here's how we're going to be responsible and here's what you should look for in a place that you're going to trust with your gifts but that's the passage that Paul has and we're not going to dodge it just because it's never been talked about and along the way as we talk about it I'm going to give you some insights into how we're applying these things at Westridge so you can trust your leaders here's the first principle Paul basically says the priority in any organization needs, on, needs to be on disciples, not dollars. He says, Thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern that I have for you. For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and of his own initiative. Paul was thrilled that Titus actually wanted to go to Corinth and help them, because <laughs> that wasn't the story the first time he went. When he sent Titus the first time, it took some convincing. Because they were a tough crowd, these Corinthian Christians. They were unruly. They, when Paul would write these letters back and say, here's the things you need to do, here's how I'm helping you, their initial response was to question Paul's authority. Who in the world are you to tell us what to do? Their communion time had turned into a drunken festival. They were an interesting church, to say the least, when you read everything that was going on there. Titus, you kind of get the picture when Paul said, I need you to go work with them, Titus like, seriously? Is there not, I mean, is there someplace else I could go? But by the time Paul penned this document, Titus had been there and he'd worked with them. He'd fallen in love with them. When Paul said they were having some struggles, it tugged on Titus' heart. And he went of his own accord, of his own initiative. His concerns for them were the same as Paul's concerns. And it wasn't about them being short on their commitment or short on their goal. He wasn't going in as a bill collector, saying, hey, you promised, deliver. His concern was about their spiritual growth. You read the first verses in chapter 8. Paul says, you've grown in so many ways. You've grown in faith. You've grown in knowledge. You've grown in love. Now your generosity is your next step of growth. That's what we're anxious to see you grow in, is generosity. And it really was a step of growth for them. The original Greek language says that they pledged a liberal gift, a very large sum of money. And even in this affluent culture that they were in, the language indicates that this was going to be a stretch for them. To give this much. And then throw in the fact that this was an eclectic group of Gentiles, non Jews, who were pledging a gift to the Jewish community in Jerusalem. What you have is aid being given between two ethnic groups that had been enemies for hundreds of years. Incredible growth. So let me say the first principle again. When you're giving money to any church or any organization, the message you hear about their cause needs to be louder than their pleas for cash. I know every organization goes through cycles and where they're raising money and they go through crisis points, but your antenna should go up if you consistently hear more about them needing money than you do about the work that they're doing and the change that's happening in people's lives. honestly, It's why we're so cautious about asking money for Westridge. I believe that the birthday offering that we did, if I've got this right, was the first time since this building was built that we asked for money. And I know that it's the first time that the church has ever asked for money around the general fund. It's just not something that we do around here because of our sensitivity around this. I was thinking about this, and even last year, I don't know how many of you were around, or if you even remember this, but late October last year, we were something like $50,000 or $60,000 behind in general fund giving. It's a lot of money for a church our size. And you may remember what happened. We had a commitment to the Uganda Orphans Choir to come in in the first part of November. We honored that commitment. Not only did we honor that commitment when we were really far behind in our budget, but we set up a table in the atrium area, and said, we'd encourage you to sponsor orphans. An unbelievable number of you made a monthly commitment to sponsor an orphan in Uganda. And we took a love offering for them when we were behind on our general fund. We asked for them, we didn't ask for us. About the same time, we opened up a partnership with Huff Elementary that has blossomed and grown We asked for them. We didn't ask for us. All we did was we put this little line in the program that's there every single week and said, here's the offering need and here's where we are. Just left it at that. Now, behind the scenes, (laughs) the leaders were praying like crazy about that need. And at the end of the year, what happened was crazy. Because we ended up with giving being something like 99 point something percent of giving Versus budget, God supplied our needs because we kept our focus on ministry. Not on standing up here and saying, we need you to give, we need you to give, we need you to give. Oh my gosh, look at the deficit. It's just a philosophy around here that we live by. Second principle that Paul says in this passage is that it's really important that the gifts be handled with integrity. Integrity. Paul was careful to avoid any action that would raise suspicion, either with the people who were a part of the church in Corinth or anyone outside of the church who was watching. And listen to the language that he uses. He says, "...we're sending along with Titus, the brother who's praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What's more, this man was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering." which we administer in order to honor the Lord Himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift. For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. In addition, we're sending with them, these two people, Titus and this other man, we're sending with them our brother, who has often proved to us in many ways that he is zealous And now even more so because of his great confidence in you. Paul takes extreme care with this large donation. He doesn't collect it himself. Doesn't touch the money because he doesn't want any suspicion about his motives. He sends Titus, who they have a relationship with and they trust, to be over-collecting it. And then he sends two men chosen not by him, but by the churches in Jerusalem that are going to receive the gift with Titus. And then if you read the end of 1 Corinthians and the section in the book of Acts that records Paul's working with Corinth, what you find is that Paul also instructs the church there to select a few men to go with these people once the offering is collected, to go with them to Jerusalem to make sure that the money is delivered, that the money is distributed correctly, and then to go back and report that to the church in Corinth what we see in Paul's actions is the church in the New Testament isn't given a pass on financial integrity. Paul did everything that he could to ensure that there was integrity in the way these funds were handled and distributed. Regardless of the size of the budget, churches need to have integrity. In fact, the church has every reason to have integrity, even more so than corporations or individuals, because how we handle money reflects directly on the image of Christ. And that's a huge responsibility. And churches learn the hard way that you have to stay vigilant on this. A lot of them do. A lot of churches think it could never happen to us, and it does. I was with a church in Fort Worth a few years ago. And I was talking to the senior pastor about a new building that they had just built. And he didn't seem to be as excited about it as senior pastors usually are when a new building is completed and they've just moved in. And so I probed just a little bit about what was behind that. What he shared with me was that a board member who had been overseeing that building project had skimmed a few hundred thousand dollars off the building fund. Been a part of the church for a long time. They trusted him. And he just skimmed. Just a small percentage of this multi-million dollar project. A few checks here, a few checks there. And because they trusted him, there weren't any checks and balances in the system. You can't imagine the emotional and spiritual anguish that this church went through as they had to take a trusted, loved member of their church to court and prosecute him for fraud. You can't imagine what that did to the reputation of the church in the community as this was played out in the news or what that did to the reputation of Christ as the church was dragged through the mud. There are simple things that can be done to prevent that. And we do those here. Nobody counts the offering alone here. It's always at least two people in the room when the offering bags are open and the money is counted. Every check that's signed here takes two signatures. It's just a simple accountability thing. We have a finance team. Here, that's led by Norm Whitney, who doesn't even like to write checks. (laughs) And so I do turnabout, and I don't sign checks for him. Um, But we do that so that no one person has control over all aspects of the finances here. There's accountability. And by the way, one of the best things that I love is that our finance team watches our spending according to what's given, not according to the budget. So that it keeps us like a family budget should be. We spend according to what we have, not what we think we'll have. And then we have professional accounting systems in place to track donations and expenses down to the last penny. And some really interesting things happen when you track spending down to the penny. Um, I'm telling this on my wife, and I have her permission. Um, It happened this week. So we track spending down to the last penny, and some of our staff, just for purchasing purposes, it's easier to have a debit card Uh, to just order supplies and resources, and they have low limits on those. But they have to be reconciled. So the finance team asks them on a monthly basis to go through the charges, turn in the receipts, and reconcile those debit cards. So my wife was flagged by the finance team this week, which I thought was hilarious, (laughs) for two charges on her account that were identical and were almost $350 each. You're in trouble. So she looked at me, she she couldn't make sense of the print on those. So she called the card company and said, I just have a question on these charges. And I was sitting across the dining room table at home on Monday morning when they started explaining to her what the charges were for, and I watched the color climb up her neck and across her cheekbones and in her face she went, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. No, that wasn't me. I never used an escort service. I'm so hurt. It was in Europe, and it's been a long time since we've been to Europe, so she's safe. But that kind of accountability, down to the last penny, keeps us from wasting money. So we were laughing about it in the office this week and one other staff member said, yeah, I was billed for a trip to Australia that I never took. I mean, so we track those things for accountability purposes. It just helps that the finance team holds us responsible for what we spend and how we spend it. The leadership team holds the finance team accountable. We watch those things. We look at reports every month. And, and the leadership team is held accountable by all of you. We are always open to dialogue. We may not have the answers for questions that you have when you ask them. But we'll talk. We'll find the answers. We'll come back. That's not true in every church. And churches that don't have those systems get in trouble. I was in one church that I served in another state. And a senior pastor was being questioned by a founding member And he finally looked at the member and said, look, stop asking questions, just shut up and give. I don't miss that church. And if you ever find yourself in a church like that, run, don't walk to the nearest exit. And you might hold your wallet while you do. There needs to be accountability, there needs to be openness, there needs to be integrity. And every leader in this church takes seriously the financial responsibility that's entrusted to us, not just by you, but by God. As Paul said, we are taking pains to do what's right, not only in the eyes of God, but in the eyes of man. And we work hard to make sure that every gift that's given is handled with integrity and is invested wisely to impact hearts and lives in this community. Every last penny. Third principle is that gifts need to be handled by trusted leaders. Trusted leaders. Now we only know the names of one of the three men that was sent by Paul to Corinth, And that's Titus. But Paul gives uniquely high praise to all three of them. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner and my co-worker among you. And for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Titus is the only one that Paul names. And he says he is a partner in this work. He was a Gentile convert to Christianity. And Titus was so deeply touched by the gospel that he devoted his entire life To ministry and spreading the message of God's grace. He's kind of Paul's special ops guy. He hangs with Paul. And if there is a difficult, you track his story, if there is a difficult church, a difficult assignment, Titus is the guy that Paul sends in. A strong leader. He's been proven in the trenches. He's proven in Corinth. He is the only one in all of Paul's writing that Paul refers to as a partner in ministry. The other two men don't get named. But they're given equally unique and high praise. It's thought that this letter was written and sent so that it would arrive in Corinth about the same time as these three men. So it would be read in front of the church just like this and they would know who these men were. So Paul says, these three men standing in front of you, Titus, he's my partner. These two guys, they are an honor to Christ, Paul doesn't say that about anybody else that he writes about. They're an honor to Christ. These men who went to Corinth were chosen not because they were number crunchers, not because they were strategists and could get the offering done. They were chosen primarily because of their character and their integrity in their relationship with Christ. When it comes to managing a church's finances and leading in that area, it's crucial to have trusted, mature, godly people leading. Not perfect people, but people who love God deeply and are living authentically. And we are blessed to have a finance team like that here. With Norm Whitney leading it, and Bruce Dilling, and Jimena Plazola, and Nicole Moore on that team, we have godly, mature people leading us in this area. And they're backed up, the same caliber of people on our leadership team. Fourth and last principle. Paul comes full circle. He comes back to the church as a whole with direction on how they can get behind these high-quality, high-integrity leaders, and he says, show them a little love. He says in verse 24, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Another translation simply says, show them your love. Paul says to the church, I want you to love these three men who have been given the task of leading you in a tough situation. Love them, support them, follow through on the growth they're there to help you do. We have some amazing leaders here at Westridge. We really do. 98% of them are volunteers. In fact, if you're new around Westridge, one of our core values is that we're volunteer-driven. We intentionally have a low number of staff here. It's on purpose. So odds are, if you see somebody leading something or serving in some area, they have a day job. They don't take a paycheck from the church here. They don't get any money for serving on the finance team, on the leadership team, for serving with our kids on Sunday morning, serving the cafe, on our compassion ministry, any of that. I was thinking this week, if we applied Paul's words here, what would it mean for us as a church to show a little love to those who lead? Simple ways. I think one of the first things we could do is pray for our leaders. Just pray. Put a sticky note on your bathroom mirror, on your refrigerator door, on the windshield of your car to remind you to pray for the leaders of this church. There's a list of them in the back of the program. There's web, on the website, there's a list of the ministry teams, even without knowing their names, just to pray for the people who lead those ministries that God would give them wisdom and insight and courage as they lead our church. Pick one or two and pray through the week for them. You could send them an email or... If you're one of those people that still writes notes, write them a note and encourage them. I'm not asking you to do that for me. I'm asking you to do that for them, for the other leaders in the church. Or if you see somebody leading or serving today, thank them. If you go pick your kids up from Westridge Kids today, just say thank you for the time and energy that they invest in leading in our church. Or the greatest encouragement you could give for those leaders maybe to step up and serve beside them throughout the birthday series in this series i've been amazed by the number of you who've been motivated to step up and say you know what i've been attending here for a while and i think i want to just get in the game i want to just begin serving find a place and serve contribute put a stake in the ground and say this is my church home and i want to be a part of something i may not know what that is but i want to start investigating That's a huge encouragement to leaders when you step up and get in the game. You may have other ideas of your own, but whatever it is, take some time this week to encourage leaders to show a little love. Look, I'm fully aware that this whole series that we're doing on Why Give is countercultural. To give consistently and generously to God is... It's an upside down, inside out way to live. When you look at your budget, when you look at your bills, when you look at the debt and habits that we have in our lives, and you hear the messages from our culture about consuming, and you put that against what we're teaching in this series, it can be hard. And the last thing you need is for leaders in a church to do something stupid or unethical that puts an additional obstacle in your way to giving. Something that makes you question if you should start giving or increase your giving or continue to give at all. It's already hard enough. So if you've been burned by a church or a situation or if you have doubts or questions, then ask. Find a leadership team member. Ask me, ask Darren or Gordon or someone in a leadership role. We have leaders here who can be trusted and we have systems in place that catch people if they get out of line. We don't have anything to hide. We'll help you deal with your hurdles and your questions so that you can get on with this grace of giving and growing in that. And I hope, I hope, I hope it's absolutely clear by now in this series, we don't care about how much you give. I would think Darren's message from two weeks ago would have made that absolutely clear when he issued the money-back guarantee. (laughs) And if you didn't hear that message two weeks ago, pick it up, and if nothing else, listen to the last ten minutes where he gives a money-back guarantee on giving. You don't hear that often in churches. What we care about is your spiritual growth, your relationship with God. Evelyn Underhill, a Christian author, said this, We spend most of our lives conjugating three verbs, to have, to want, and to do. Craving, clutching, and fussing, we're kept in perpetual unrest. The upside-down life of generosity that God calls us to helps us break free of that perpetual unrest. It helps us understand God in new ways. It helps us find a different way to live. And more importantly than opening up our wallets, generosity opens our hearts and our lives. And we begin to trust God not only with our eternity when we become generous, we trust Him with our today and our tomorrow. And we trust God in new ways, with broken parts of our story that we thought could never be redeemed.